Well, tonight we are in Psalm number 113. Psalm 113. You, the remnant preserved of Israel. <laughs> the cream of the crop. I can look at it that way. I get to keep the best. Yeah, the best of the best. And then I look up and see who's here and question that. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Psalm 113, we're working our way through the Psalms. We've come a long way, as you can see. Uh, let's read this together, and then we'll take a, take a look at it for a few minutes. Psalm 113, Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same. The Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that He may set him with princes, even with the princes of His people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be a joyful mother of children, praise ye the Lord. All right, somebody tell me in Hebrew, what is the phrase, praise ye the Lord? Hallelujah. It means to praise the Lord. These are, this section that we're beginning tonight, starting in 113 and going on down to 118, are sometimes called the Hallel. Sometimes they call them the Great Hallel. Other times they call them the Egyptian Hallel. I'm not sure who they are here, but uh, nevertheless, these were a section of the Psalms that the Jews traditionally recited or sang when they observed the feasts, the joyful feasts. Now, there were some mournful feasts. Can you think of a feast where you were supposed to be sad? Well, Day of Atonement. You were to fast and to afflict yourself on that day. That was not a happy feast. On the other hand, there were feasts that were joyful feasts, and especially the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall was like a nationwide cookout and campout and uh, festivity of grand proportions. And in particular, this section of the Psalms was to be sung or recited in observance of the Passover, and so they're sometimes connected with the Exodus in Egypt. That's why they're sometimes called the Egyptian Hillel, but we'll get into that later on as we go further into this section. Um, when you think of hallelujah, yah, whenever you see that, that's of course an abbreviation for Jehovah. It's a clue that you have God in the name. Uh, just trying to think of a name of a famous person who would have yah in his name. We have a whole bunch of them with L, which is short for Elohim, and you've got Joel and Samuel. Uh, what about Yah? Is there a name? I... What'd you say? Elijah. That's exactly right. Um, Micah. Most of those that have a ah on the end are going to have the name of God in there somewhere. Um, to the Jew, this phrase, hallelujah, is like the phrase, Allah Akbar to a Muslim. Y'all are familiar with that phrase. If you ever on an airplane 
and somebody stands up and says, Allah Akbar, prepare to meet your maker. <laughs> They're fixing to pull the pin. <laughs> it's not going to be a good day for anybody. Uh, but that is their sort of battle cry. That is their shout of allegiance to their God Allah. Well, in the same sense, the Jew would say this phrase, Hallelujah, praise be to the Lord. Uh, it This psalm is the sort of like, I, I was thinking about how to approach this. A very simple psalm, very short psalm. And uh, it is not a didactic psalm like some we have that has a lot of real deep instruction. It, it's not a narrative psalm where you're telling a story. Remember like Psalm 107, we have those four little snippets, four little vignettes in there, scenes. Um, it, it's just a very simple psalm. So I'm saying, well, you know, what, what can I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to speak five minutes about this tonight. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and then I got to think about it some more. It is a call to praise. It is rallying the troops. It's akin to being at the football game and the cheerleaders getting the crowd behind the team. Now, let's be careful that God doesn't need us to pump him up or to pep him up. Uh, He was very content before we came along, self-sufficient in himself. Um, He doesn't need us. We need him. That's the real truth of the matter. But... It is right, it is fitting that God's people praise His name. And so this is calling on the people of God to come together for a season, for a praise fest, if you will. I'm sort of thinking of Arkansas. I think of all the SEC teams, Arkansas has the neatest thing. When they go out and call the hogs, y'all ever seen them do that? I mean, that is, that is impressive. Just, I mean, I don't care a hoot about Arkansas football, you understand, but I'd like to go just to hear them call the hog sometime. Well, this is calling on God's people to come and to assemble and to appraise God. So it is very much akin to a pep rally. And again, not that God needs us to uh, somehow extol him, lift him up, get him out of the dumps or anything like that, but it's simply right and fitting that we praise him. Notice that in our psalm, after the initial verse of calling the servants to praise his name, we have the statement in verse 2 that he is to be praised, his name is to be praised at all times. Notice, from this time forth forevermore. In other words, at all times we should be praising God. And then notice in the next verse, verse 3, from the rising of the sun until the going down the same. Where does the sun come up? Well, last time I checked, it comes up somewhere over here, right? And where does it go down? It goes down over there. But it's a figure of speech to say from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, what the psalmist is really meaning is at all places, everywhere the sun shines, they should be praising God. So notice we're starting with the idea of when should we praise God? Who should praise God? And the answer is at all times and at all places. Everywhere man is, he should be engaged in praising God. And then in in verses 4 through 6, we see what I call here the exalted position of God. And uh, that is pointed out in verse 4 that the Lord is high. Back in the uh, 60s, when Lyndon Johnson was president, uh, one of his rationale for sending a man to the moon was that we needed to have the high ground against the Russians. 
because always in warfare, the high ground was the defensible ground. If you're above your enemy, you have a natural advantage, at least to modern days. Today, you don't want to be high because you get blown up with a cruise missile, but in the, you want to be down in the hole somewhere. But in the old days, the way you fought was to take the high ground. I was standing at the Gettysburg battlefield watching the layout there of Seminary Hill over where the Confederate Army was, Cemetery Ridge up where the Union Army, and just looking at that, it was it's just by accident the Union Army was driven back to this fishhook-shaped ridge that fell, worked right into their favor. Uh, typically in the battles that the Confederate Army fought with the Union Army, uh, the Union Army just made blunder after blunder after blunder, which the Confederate Army took advantage of. This time it was reversed. That the Union Army had an ideal situation along this fishhook-shaped ridge, and they basically just let the Confederates make mistakes. They really didn't have to do anything. Just hold your ground. Hold your position. You've got the high ground. Let them make the mistakes, and they did. And so the high ground is very important. Now, keep in mind, when we say that God is high, we don't mean that He's... Well, when we speak of God, we speak of Him as up, don't we? In fact, Jesus would lift His eyes to heaven and say, Father. And yet we know that that direction, which is up to us, is down to an Australian. Uh, We don't mean that God is literally in that direction, but by saying that He's high, and he's up, what we're acknowledging is that by position and rank and authority, he is high above us. He is far greater, far wiser, far more powerful than you or I. Would you agree? In other words, we're not really arguing position, although we'll see that in a minute. It's sort of the figure of speech is that. I'm thinking about Israel. You know, today we get in the airplane, we fly up in the sky and so forth, but in Israel... About as high as you're ever going to go is to climb a mountain. That's about it. That's as you're, you're land bound. And so the idea of God being above you is that He is not subject to the same limitations that you or I are subject to. He is great. He is sovereign. Uh, notice that He is the one who rules then. His glory is above the heavens. And the question in verse 5 is, Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwells on high? The uniqueness of God. Uh, We live in a day where dualism has sort of come back into vogue. And that is, well, there's this good God and this bad God called the devil, and they're fighting it out. When good things happen to you, God is winning. When the devil starts winning, bad things happen to you. But in no way is the devil any rival to God Almighty. He is himself a created being, We've seen in our study of the book of Job that he is on a leash. He can go only as far as God Almighty allows him. Sort of like the dog chained up in your backyard. Within a certain sphere, he's free to act, but he can go no further than the restraints that God puts upon him. And so notice that there simply is no other God like our God. Um, There is no rival. There is no one as high and great and mighty as he. And then verse 6, even though he is high... He stoops. He looks down. He beholds things. And notice, he humbles himself to see things in heaven. For us to see things in heaven, we've got to look up. 
for God to see things in heaven, He's got to look down. That right there tells you a little bit of a word picture of how far above us our God is. That He must humble Himself to behold. You remember the Scripture says even the heavens are unclean in His sight. They're far below Him because the heavens belong to the created order. Uh, some of you may remember the history of the Nicene Council in 325 A.D. And uh, the Aryan party was pushing that Jesus was simply a created being, the highest created being, the first created being, but he was a created being, an exalted angel. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness today teach the same thing. They're modern-day Aryans. And Athanasius from Alexandria won the day for what we would call the orthodox view of the nature of Christ. And it was simply that there is an infinite distance. He said you can exalt Christ as a creature as high and high as you would like, but there's an infinite gulf between he who is the creator and he who is the creature. And point, the point I'm making here is in the same sense, notice that God is infinitely higher than even the heavens that he has created. He must stoop. He must humble himself. He's got to look down to see the heavens. i I struck by that. And then, not only does he stoop to see things that are in heaven, especially then he must stoop to see things in earth. And then notice the last section here is what we would call the power of God, the exalting power of God. Uh, notice in verse 7, he raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill. Uh, we have seen in our study of Job that to be sitting in dust and ashes is a sign of the extremity of your circumstances and of your need. I mean, you're in bad shape when you're sitting in dust and ashes. I would think, sitting on the dunghill, you're probably even worse. Uh, this is about as low as you can go. You have sunk, you've hit rock bottom when you're seated in the dust and the dunghill. But notice God is the one who lifts the poor. Um, I'm thinking of David... Uh, talking about being sunk in the miry clay in Psalm 40 and God lifting him out of that clay. Um, notice that not only does he lift them out of their extremity, but he sets them with the princes, with those who are in authority, with the great men of earth. In other words, God is able to exalt. We saw, I think that was you guys, we were dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, where God abased, yeah, yeah, that's a few Sundays ago, where God is able to abase those who walk in pride. In other words, in that circumstance, he takes a man off the throne, Nebuchadnezzar, the most mighty man on earth, most powerful man, humanly speaking, and puts him out in the pasture like a cow, letting his hair grow and his nails grow in long till his understanding returned to him. In that case, you see God bring a man down, but notice here the emphasis on God is able to lift a man up out of the circumstances, the worst circumstances on earth, to set him with the princes. And then notice the reference here to the barren woman. In uh, the ancient world, for a woman not to have children uh, was as shameful and disgraceful as, as it could possibly be. Um, we have a number of barren women in Scripture whom God allows to give birth. Can you name them? Hannah? 
Sarah, Elizabeth in the New Testament, Rachel. There's one in the middle between Sarah and Rachel. Hmm? Rebecca, yeah. It's just one little verse about Rebecca was barren. And notice the big three. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of their wives can't give birth until God allows it. You can pretty well put it down. Anybody else? I'm thinking of one more. The wife of Manoah, we don't know her name, but who bore Samson. So notice that when you have this happen, when God supernaturally allows a woman to give birth, there is somebody important going to be born. And you see that all the way up to the birth of John the Baptist. And then in the case of Jesus, it's not just a barren woman, it's a virgin woman who gives birth. Sort of the supreme example of this. So notice that God is able to bring fertility to the barren woman to where her home, she's a joyful mother of children, her house filled with with kids. Okay, that's the psalm. Let's quit and go home. Um, Well, not quite. I want you to notice what I would call here the fact that God, being where He is, is able to produce, and for want of a better term, reversals of our circumstances in our life. Notice that here is the man seated in about as low a position as you can go, in the dust, on the dunghill, and God exalts him to the place of a prince. The woman who is absolutely like Hannah in shame and sorrow and disgrace because she can't have kids suddenly is given children and her house is full of kids. That God is able to reverse our circumstances and often does reverse our circumstances. I thought we might take a few moments and have you think back in your life of any episode, any example that you can give us of such a reversal in your case. Now, there's one great reversal for us all, and that's when we're saved. We were about as low as we can go. We are headed for hell, and God has snatched us, rescued us, to use the language of Paul, translated us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So we all share that. Uh, But besides your salvation, can you point to any other reversal of your circumstances? Just just time of testimony. Can you think of any time that God has so remarkably come to the rescue that to lose your job was a great blessing? I see somebody else sitting back there right next to you that I can say the same thing about. Mr. Barry Godwin, that one of the great blessings of his life was to get fired from his job. (laughs) You didn't think so at the time, did you? No. Was that what you were going to share? I saw your hand go up. Yeah, yeah, y'all would, most of y'all have not been here long enough to remember that, but there was much weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, back there. Was Collier, was that who it was that you worked for? And, And all of a sudden, out was Barry, and my best thing that could ever happen to you. 
just from a human point of view or spiritual point of view, however you want to look at it. Uh, Cheryl, like getting saved. Well, you are not alone. There are lots of folks who will say the same thing. And I can say that, that what I experienced when God showed me grace, really understood grace, it was so earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting, that it was like you were getting saved all over again. And I wondered the same thing. Was that really when I was saved? I don't think so, but I could have been. It, it, I may be mistaken. I understand what you're saying. For me, somewhere around 1975 in Wyoming, sitting on a couch, I, I, man, I can visualize... I, it was one of those things that sometimes the Lord has to get you to ask the right question before you're going to get the right answer. And I had been wrestling with this, I'd, teaching through Romans. I was up in Romans 8 when all of this transpired, and the question was, where does faith come from? I was a, good enough of a Southern Baptist to realize you had to have faith to be saved. And that's true. Uh, then the question is, if that's true, then where does faith come from? Is it a gift, or is it in our own production? And I was sitting on the couch in our living room in Wyoming, reading through the book of Acts. I know I've read this, I don't know, not a hundred times, but a dozen times. Acts 13:48, where Paul says, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And I thought... Something's wrong here. Somebody has changed that verse around. It ought to say, as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. Instead, it said, as many as were ordained to, ordained to eternal life, believed. And I mean, you could not have hit me between the eyes with a sledgehammer and made a deeper impression on me than that. It was like from that instant, the light came on. That settled it once and for all. And I knew nothing was ever going to be the same again. Including me remaining as a pastor of a Southern Baptist church. <laughs> I pretty well knew that back in the 70s, my days were numbered. And uh, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I got that one right. I could see that. I could, it didn't take a major prophet to read the handwriting on that wall. Uh, I could read it quite plain myself. There are times that God in providence steps in to our lives. And, oh, and, you know, that's... I once preached a message called The Most Predestined Life Ever Lived. And of course, I was talking about Jesus Christ. And I prefaced it by saying, it's just how it seems to us, no life is less or more predestined than another. All things are predestined by the will of Him who is in charge of the universe. But there's sometimes that we see it. Most of the time we go through life and things just sort of fall into place or fall out, of, sometimes fall apart, and we don't think much about it. But then there's those times where everything depends on this, and God steps into the picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my. I, and again, some of y'all weren't around when all that was going on with Daryl, but uh, wow, what a complete... Um, as Daryl himself has said, God had to take away his sight to give him sight. And uh, my friend in Wyoming used to say that the man who's not born again cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
And the man who is born again can't see anything but the kingdom of heaven. That's all we see. And Daryl, that's exactly what you're saying. All of a sudden, something changed and that your whole world shifted, became God-centered. Anyone else? Before we... Right. That, that that is your experience of... Yeah, right, exactly. And it comes down, and I think you said something right at the very beginning, and this, of course, the study in Job has been so helpful. You say, well, I just don't see any cause in me for this. Well, that's exactly the whole problem, is that that's, there is no cause. The cause is in him, not in us. And therein where you you just finally come to the point where I'm, I'm barking up the wrong tree here. I'm fighting the wrong battle that the God who I've taken as my enemy is in fact my friend is the only hope I've got. It's his word that I've got to just cling to. But we'll pray that that will be sealed. Mm-hmm. And that's what the psalmist is. This God who is overall has to stoop to look down to the heavens, let alone us, is the God who picks the poor and needy out of the ash heap. Yeah. Um, our, uh, I was going to share before I got sidetracked a while ago about uh, one amazing providence. And it's just there are certain times you can look back in your life that you just unmistakably know this is the hand of God. The the timing. It's miraculous, not in the sense of turning wine, oh, I was going to say wine into water. Yeah. That's the miracle most Southern Baptists are praying for, turning wine into water. <laughs> no. But it's not the transformation of elements or anything like that, but it's just the, the remarkable providence, the remarkable timing. And... Uh, I had been kicked out of my first church, and my wife and two of our kids were born then. We were living in a a 17-foot-long camper trailer in the backyard of one of the families, a dear dear brother and sister, who had sort of had mercy upon our poor, pitiful souls. And we were searching for a place to live. It's hard to describe what was happening out there. The, uh, The oil boom had started had found a huge discovery right underneath town, and the oil companies had come in and bought up every place you could possibly live. They had bought it or rented it for their people to come in and get. And so, you know, you were competing with the oil companies, and there was just nothing. There was nowhere to live, literally nowhere to live. And so for months and months and months, my wife had a miscarriage during the time. We came home from the hospital, back to the camper trailer. Um, uh, you're, You're just standing there... What in the world are we doing? Well, finally, I was working at the state hospital. I keep saying I was not a patient there. I don't care what anybody says. Anyway, uh, but I came home one day, and Linda was so excited because she had found this basement house (laughs) to rent. It was about 10 miles out to the north of town, and uh, it was a house that they had started to build. They built the basement and then never built the house. So it was just a basement. It was pretty much even with the ground, and you go down it. In other words, uh, it begins to show you how bad things were in the camper trailer when the basement house is looking good. Well, anyway, she had arranged with the lady. We had it rented. Um, We uh, 
loaded up a load of stuff, and she and I drove out there. We were meeting her to get the, uh, the lady to get the key uh, to move into the basement house. And we pulled in, that, and I, I sent something's wrong from the moment I stepped out of the car. This woman was not about to let us have the key. And turns out this was a prominent Mormon family, and she had found out who I was. And they weren't about to let us live in their hole in the ground. <laughs> anyway, we had to turn around and drive back into town. And you talk about a hard... My wife was in tears, and I was pretty much in tears myself. Because I mean, months and months. And this is the only light at the end of the tunnel. The only hope was a hole in the ground. And we can't even get the hole in the ground. They won't even rent us the hole in the ground. Oh, man. And uh, anyway, one of the uh, families in the little group, we had about six families we were meeting together uh, for church services. And one of those families was out on that side of town. We stopped there at their home because this guy was the brand inspector, and he knew all the ranch. This was a ranching family out to the north of town. He knew all these guys because he has to inspect their livestock. And so we basically pulled in there to cry on their shoulders a little bit and tell them what had happened. And uh, while we're sitting there having this conversation, uh, his wife says, uh, say, is anybody living in that place out on Myers Ranch? And Well, I knew who the Myers were. They were the prominent Mormon family. The, the man, the, the older guy was the senator from that end of the state. I mean, this was a prominent, you talk about big name. They had this huge spread south of town. And uh, anyway, he says, no, I don't think so. And she said, well, I'm just going to go call Judy. So she picks up the phone and calls out and talks to Judy Myers. And, and uh, she says, uh, is anybody living in the place where you and Ken used to live? She said, I said, funny you should ask. said, uh, we were holding that. We had a cow hand that was moving up here from Arizona, going to move in there and live. And he called me ten minutes ago and said they weren't coming. And she said, uh, and Donna says, well, our, our pastor needs a place to stay. And Judy says, send them on out here. If they want it, they can have it. And that was our home for the next six years. Out Beautiful. Now, the place was small and it was dirty. Don't get Linda started. There's more dead flies in that place than you could count. But, oh, it was paradise. It was 100 yards from the Bear River, this trout fishing stream. It went through their ranch for miles and miles. They had, they, we were eight miles out of town. They owned the valley all the way to town and two miles past us. That's what they owned. Then they had section after section of land that they leased from the government to run their cattle on out on the range. And they just gave us the run of it. To this day, I have not a clue why they would have done what they did for us. I don't know. All I know was in ten minutes, God turned the whole circumstance on its ear. Amazing what our God can do for us. So never, ever underestimate what God can do and how quickly He can do it. It's amazing. When He displays His power, there's nothing going to stand in His way. Okay, well this is the God. The God who is all-sovereign, worthy of praise by all people, in all places, at all times. The God who occupies the high ground has to stoop to look down to heaven. That's strange language, isn't it? He has to look down upon heaven. 
And then the God, because He is that God, the God who is able to pluck those in the worst of circumstances, pluck them out of the dust, and set them on high like the princes. That's the God we worship. No wonder they say, Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. 